If you would please take your Bibles and let's turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I'm going to start reading at verse 6 through the end of verse 9. We'll read that first and then we'll look at another portion of this same chapter. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7 beginning at verse 6. Now as a concession not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, if you look over at verse 25 with me, we'll start reading from verse 25, same chapter. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong in it, and it has to be, let him do As he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. This is God's word. You'll see a picture of the country of Sudan. It is the fourth most dangerous country in all the world 
to follow Jesus. It's a country of 42 million. The religion of the country is no surprise is Islam. There are only 2 million Christians in that country. And their freedom is severely restricted. And so in an effort to broaden our understanding of just how large the family of God is, I want us to pray for them and to pray for ourselves this morning. So if you'll bow your heads. Heavenly Father, to your great glory, your people are all around this world. From every tribe, tongue, and nation to the glory of our God. So we praise you this morning for these fellow believers in the country of Sudan. We specifically want to pray for opportunities for these believers to fellowship with other believers. As we get to do today, as we have the opportunity to fellowship with one another, to pray for one another, to encourage one another, We pray for our brothers and sisters in Sudan that opportunities will come about for them to meet together with other believers for vital fellowship. We also want to pray specifically for the church leaders that they would stand strong in the midst of danger and opposition. We pray that the gospel would break forth in that country under severe persecution May the people of God remain faithful to proclaim the gospel truth. And Father, for us today, for us who have tremendous liberty, though our liberty is somewhat being attacked, still in comparison, we have such opportunities for fellowship, public worship, and for the spread of the gospel. Holy Spirit, as we unpack this text this morning, We ask that you would work mightily in our hearts, in this church, that we might be about the business of serving our Lord. That we would not be afraid, that we would be unashamed to share our faith, to be bold in our witness, to be courageous, to serve our Lord. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Over the past three Sundays, we have been in a brief series on the gift of marriage. Today, I want to speak to you about the gift of singleness. The gift of singleness. Now, before you check out on me, you may be sitting here this morning and say, look, I'm married, getting married, so this really doesn't have anything to do with me. I promise that there is something here for everyone. I promise. Now, in the years that I've been in the church I cannot remember, I thought hard this week, I cannot remember a single time in all the years where this subject was addressed from the pulpit, speaking to singles. And I think what's happened is, and in fact I'm persuaded that this has happened, is that many singles have felt like second-class citizens in the church. One brother told me right after the 9 a.m. service, he said, you know, he said the church can be a lonely place for a single person or a divorced person, can often feel second class. And why is that? Sometimes it's because we speak a lot about marriage and family, and that's good. But oftentimes, we do a terrible disservice to those who are single. And so, this morning, we want to speak 
primarily about the gift of singleness. But before we do that, I want to lay a foundation because it's important that you and I get this first. The duty and the calling of every human being is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is the calling and the duty of every human being, married or single. This is the one absolute human obligation every day of every life. You say, well, I do love the Lord our God. But sometimes that idea gets a little murky in our world. To love the Lord. So what, what does that mean? Does that mean I have strong feelings for the Yeah, okay. But to help us understand loving the Lord... Jesus says it's the first and great commandment. And so what do we do? We go back to the Ten Commandments and we go, what is the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What Jesus is saying is if you really love God, it's not just in words and it's not just in feelings. It is putting him first. It is serving him and his people. And so the first great calling and obligation of every human being is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The only question is how we're going to do it. Married or single? So what I want you to see first above everything, what Paul has to say about singleness and marriage for that matter is written within the context of this obligation. There there was a verse in there where he was concerned about their devotion to the Lord. And that's Paul's way of saying, look, I'm talking to Christian people who have an obligation to love the Lord their God, whether they're married or single. And so this whole message today about the gift of singleness is in the context of our obligation to love and to serve our Lord, whether married or single. Now these verses present many questions. If you were just following along in your Bible or listening, I feel like it's likely that there were some questions that came up, like where it said, when you marry, you will have worldly troubles. And that's something to talk about on the way home today. You know, like, what's that mean? You know? So there's a lot of questions that could come up in these passages. And so we won't be able to answer every question that could It's conceivable, but here's what I want to do to unpack this today. I want to do it in a series of questions. The first question is this. If Paul is not giving commands, should we listen to what he says? Look with me at verse 6. I want you to see this. This is really important. It's important not only here, but other places in Paul's letters. Verse 6, he says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And then over in verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If Paul is not giving commands, 
should we listen to what he says? Because he's clearly told us, this is not a command from the Lord. I'm not giving a command. I'm giving my judgment. Uh, In fact, the word concession means allowance or lenient judgment. So Paul's not laying in saying, you got to do this. You can't do that. He's not giving commands. And so if he's not giving commands, should we even listen to what he has to say? How are we to understand this? Well, first, Paul is an apostle. And yes, we should listen to him. But Brother Van, he's not given a command. Paul is an apostle. He is a mouthpiece for the Lord who clarifies biblical commands. All through his letters, Paul is clarifying. Peter's clarifying. John's clarifying. Here's what the Lord said. He's clarifying. But here, it's important to see, here he is not laying down a fixed universal rule. And so you say, well, if he's not, if he's not laying down commands, why should I listen to him? He's not laying down a fixed universal rule. He makes clear that what should be done depends upon individual circumstances. Already you're beginning to feel freedom, okay, right? You should. Look at verse 28. Look at verse 28 and what he says. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Paul is basically saying this. I'm not making a command. I'm giving you my judgment. I'm giving you trustworthy counsel. But if you do not accept this counsel, you have not sinned. Do you see that? Paul is not wanting to force anyone into marriage or singleness. Rather, he is offering trustworthy counsel. Explain it this way. Let's say that you see a professional counselor. Let's say that you're dealing with an issue that is not a hard wrong or a hard right. In other words, it's not, it's not an issue of right or wrong, but you're trying to see your way through your circumstances. The counselor might say, look, in light of your circumstances, In light of your circumstances, it seems to be the wisest path would be this. They're not laying down a command. They're not forcing you one way or the other. They are giving their trustworthy counsel. You've gone to that person. You're talking to that person because you trust them. And that's what Paul says of himself. He gives trustworthy counsel. But also notice this. Paul vigorously is defending what's called Christian freedom. There are some church settings where people like for the pastor or the leadership to come down hard one way or the other. Tell me what's right. Tell me what's wrong. Give me a rule. Give me a command. And Paul is defending Christian freedom. In verses 36 through 38, look with me. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. What? Let him do as he wishes. Let him do what he pleases. You choose. No command, no force. Verse 37, but whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Notice that word better. See, Paul is is opening the door for Christian freedom. In other words, you choose. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not going to draft legislation on this. You 
decide. You choose. But he does offer counsel by saying, if you want to do this, do this. But if you do this, it's better. Before we go to the next question, since Paul is not laying down commands, should we listen to him? Yes. And remember this. There is more at stake in life than whether something is a sin or not. See, oftentimes, my young friends... You know, they kind of get a sensitive conscience and they begin to say, Mom, is this a sin? And, and what, you know, they're waiting for Mom to say, No, I don't think so. Okay, I'm going to do it. <laughs> because mom, mom says it's not a sin. But did, did Mom say it was wise to do it? See, there's more at stake than just whether something is a sin or not. Sometimes we want the hard rules. Tell me, just tell me if it's okay and I'm going to do it. Or tell me if it's wrong and I won't do it. There's also Christian freedom and finding the path wisdom. That's what Paul's doing here. There's more at stake whether something's a sin or not. Second question, is marriage God's answer to loneliness? It certainly doesn't seem to be, not in this text. Yet there are many people in the church who come along and will say, you know, they'll come up, you know, a dear person will say, I'm so lonely. Lonely, I'm Mr. Lonely. And some good brothers and sisters run in and go, you need to get married. I'm going to fix you up. We're going to get you hitched up, you know, because you're lonely. And you know why people think that God gives marriage to solve the problem of loneliness? It's because of Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The first thing, you know, you would read that and you'll see proof, proof text right there. God gives marriage to solve loneliness. No, no, no. First thing we need to notice here is God is stating a fact. He is not voicing Adam's feelings. Adam hasn't come to God and said, I'm so lonely. Can you do something about that? He doesn't do that. God is stating a fact. Why is he stating a fact? Notice what it says. It is not good that the man should be alone. What is the context for him saying this? What is the context for God saying it's not good that man be alone. The context is this. God has given Adam the task of working and keeping the garden. And it was not good that he do that alone. How do we know that this is true? It's because God gave him a helper. And the word helper means one who works alongside so that both can do the task. This is not a matter of someone being emotionally lonely and distraught because they don't have a marriage partner. God did not give here. He didn't say, I'm going to give you a companion who can sit on those lonely nights and say, I'm here. I'm here for you. No, I'm going to give you a helper, someone to come along and help you do the task that I've given you. Marriage is not God's answer to loneliness. God's world needs watchful care and careful work And those who are single will serve in many fruitful ways only for single people. And those who are married shall serve well doing it together. So the idea of marriage is not about solving the problem of loneliness because, and how do we know this in a practical way? Because there's many married couples who are often lonely. So what is is God's remedy for loneliness? We are invited into fellowship with God and with one another in Jesus Christ. In other words, what should we do with our loneliness? We should bring it 
to God and we should bring it into the fellowship with God's people. We should get connected with God's people. That, that is God's beginning place for us to deal with our loneliness. Not necessarily marriage. Question number three. In what way is singleness a gift? Look at verse 7 with me. Notice what Paul says. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God. Notice verse 8. To the, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, let's stop here for a moment. In what way is singleness a gift? First off, Paul is not referring to spiritual gifts that he speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's not the same thing. So first, I want us to think about it this way. Some some in the church might think, let's say you run upon a person who has complete disinterest in marriage, no desire for marriage. They have no emotional struggle. They're not wanting to be married. They're not wanting children. They're not wanting a family. And you come along and you say, you got the gift. You got the gift. But is that right? Is that what Paul's saying? Is that what Paul means by the gift? The gift of singleness. In other words, you, 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 I, don't, no, I don't want nothing to do with it. I don't want no kids. No, I don't want no family. I don't want, no, I don't want a wife. I don't want a husband. No. And then somebody goes, like, you see, you got the gift. Is that what? No. What seems to be, Paul is saying being single gives freedom to concentrate on ministry in ways a married person could not. Remember the context? The context is serving the Lord, whether married or single. But Paul here, and even saying this about himself, is that being single gives freedom to concentrate on ministry in ways a married person could not. See, he, he doesn't say this is without emotional struggle, without a desire to marry or have a family. In other words, there could be a person who is serving the Lord as a single person and have the gift of doing it, yet still have desires, thinking, you know, I see this couple here, and well, I, must, I wonder what it's like to be married. I wish, wish I was married. I'd like to have a family. I might like to have children. See, Paul is not saying that the gift of singleness is without internal struggles or desires and emotional struggles. But he is implying that God will help you grow spiritually and be fruitful in the lives of others as you bring your desires under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's something that every one of us in this room have to do. Sometimes our desires will get out of line. You know, I'm desiring this and and, and wait a minute, that's, that's not... That's not in line with what God has for me. We have to reel that back in and bring all of our desires under the lordship of Christ. In other words, Lord, what do you want for my life? Question number four. Is concern for self-control a good reason to marry? Look at with me verses 8 and 9. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So he's commending singleness here. But in verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. What is Paul's counsel here? If there's anyone who would know God's design for human sexuality, it would be Paul. All throughout his letters, he demonstrates that God's design for human sexuality is sex between a man and a woman in the context 
of marriage. And so what Paul has to say is in light of that. And Paul counsels that if you find yourself with a passionate attraction to someone, by all means, go ahead and get married. Or to say it this way, channel your sexual energy into marriage. If Notice he says, but if you cannot exercise self-control. Now, I need to say this because if you don't hear it here, you'll hear it somewhere. Uh, I listen to a podcast every week called Everyone's Agnostic. And I listen to it for a purpose. It is a podcast. They just had their 200th podcast just this past week. It's a podcast of, of people who professed to be Christians at one time in their life, grew up in the church, ministered in the church. Some of these are former ministers. Some of them are pastors' wives. Some of them are just, they've, they've worked in the church over the years, and then they have deconverted. They've said, I don't believe this stuff anymore. I don't even believe there's a God anymore. Don't have anything to do with this anymore. And so I listen to these every week, once a week, because I want to understand a little bit better what went wrong. In listening to these podcasts, 90% of the time, it was over sexual issues. Just this past week, the podcast that I was listening to was all about, it was all about the Christian sexual ethic being so repressive. Here's what one of them said. We got married partially because Paul taught it was better to marry than to burn in lust. A horrible reason to get married. That's really bad advice. You're going to hear this in the world. In the world, the world's idea is this. You live your life sexually like a a free-range chicken. And that there are no boundaries except consent. You know, that's, that's become the big sin of our days. If it's not consensual, then you're bad boy. But if it's consensual, that, that's okay. With whoever, whenever. The, the, world, the world is going to always say, get the shackles off me. I don't, I, don't want, I don't want this. This is oppressive. It's horrible. Every one of these guests that I listened to this week on the podcast talk about how bad it hurt them. The church had hurt them so bad because... They had been told that, you know, if, if, if you burn with lust, by the way, look at, look at verse, look at verse nine with me. I want to clear something up for it is better to, to marry than to burn with passion. It is not a good thing to preach this as you messing around out there. You better get married. You're going to burn in hell. It's probably not a good approach. It says burn with passion, you know? And what that means is again, if you find yourself passionately attracted to someone and you can't seem to control yourself, then by all means go ahead and get married. Um, and it is, it is not a horrible reason, and it is not bad advice. And here's what I want to say before I move on to the next question. We're going to have to decide, and it's going to have to be regularly, almost every day, are we going to listen to the world's way, or are we going to listen to God's way? Are we going to believe that God's word is the truth, and that he is telling us what is best for us, are we going to throw that off and we're going to go the world's way? You have to make up your mind. Nearly every day you have to make up your mind. Next question. In what way will those who are single be spared worldly troubles? Look at verse 28 again. This fascinating verse. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will 
have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, let me just pause here for a moment and make a clear statement, lest you think something wrong. Paul is not anti-marriage. Paul is not saying, do whatever you got to do to stay away from marriage. It stinks. He's not saying that. Nor is getting married a sin. Nor is Paul, listen closely, nor is Paul suggesting that loving our spouse is a distraction from loving God. Okay? Loving our spouse should never be seen as a distraction from loving God. As if, I've got to love God. Don't need no distractions here, woman. You know? No, that's not, that's not at all what Paul is suggesting here. Matter of fact, that's not even the issue at all. The issue here is this. Hardship for the Christian as they serve their Lord. That's the context. For example, the married person, Paul is saying the married person has double duty. They must tend to the needs of their spouse and their family as well as service unto their Lord. And those of you who are married here, you know that. You know that you're doing double duty often. You know, you find yourself, well, okay, this week I've got to teach Sunday school. This week I've got to teach the kids. This week I've got to serve in this way. But you also got to keep up with what's going on in the life of your family. So you've got double duty going. That's what Paul's talking about here. And so his point is this. Getting married does make life a bit more complicated as it pertains to serving the Lord. It will change your life. There are budgets to watch, job responsibilities, children to parent, elderly parents sometimes to take care of, and church obligations. And so no wonder Paul would say he wants you to keep you from feeling anxious. That's what he said. And so so Paul is not anti-marriage. The context here is he wants us... Those who are going into marriage, he wants them to go into their, with their eyes wide open. It's going to change your life. It's going to change your life. Life's going to get a bit more complicated as it pertains to serving your Lord. Next question. Can a single person serve God better than a person who is married? You might read this. You might start thinking, sounds like Paul is, is upholding singleness as being a better way to serve God than a married person. So is that true? No. Paul doesn't present one as more spiritual than the other. When you read this, he doesn't suggest that single people have got an edge spiritually on married people. He is saying, however, that you will serve God differently as a married person and you will serve God differently as a single person. For the married person... There will be ways in which you will be able to serve God or not be able to serve God where unmarried single people will. I mean, take for example, Paul. Paul was single. We, some say he was married earlier in life, but what we know right here is he was single. And imagine all the hardship of the missionary journeys that Paul went through. Would that have been conducive, say, with a wife and three children? It would probably have been extremely difficult, if not impossible. And so the married person, there will be ways in which they will not be able to serve God like a single person will. And, and conversely, the other way. But it's not better, but different. You understand? 
But a single person, it's not that they're more spiritual and, 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 more, and, and better in their service to God than the married person. No, it's just different. Paul is saying that being married and not being married are both good conditions to be in. Next question. Is the gift of singleness permanent? There doesn't seem to be any reason to think so from these verses. For example, it could be, the giftedness could be for a particular season in a person's life. Um, you know, we might be inclined to think, you know, think in hard terms like, is a gift of singleness, you got it and you're stuck with it. You know, your gift of marriage, you got it, you're stuck with it. I don't think there's anything here. In fact, otherwise, I think what Paul is wanting to stress here is choosing whether to get married or not is a matter of Christian freedom. Think about that with me for a moment. Christian freedom. There are some churches that would have often been called a toxic church, abusive church, where the leadership will lay down commands and rules. And sometimes people feel like they navigate better. You know, just tell me whether this is wrong or tell me whether it's right. Just get on with you. In other words, you, you kind of tell me how to live my life. Paul's not doing that here. Again, he is emphasizing Christian freedom. Um, and, and, and so, is the gift of singleness uh, permanent? Uh, no. No, it doesn't seem to be. It's a matter of Christian freedom. You are free to choose whether you're married or not. However, listen, as I bring this to a close. One, there's one stipulation. You are free to choose whether to get married or not as a believer. But if you are a Christian, you are to marry one who shares your faith. That is clear from other passages in the scriptures. Is the gift of singleness permanent? No. You're free, you're free to remain single or to marry. But if you're a believer, you are to marry one who shares your faith. Now, you... You might say, why? Help me, help me think through why that's a good thing. Well, for example, if Jesus is central to you, if Jesus is central to you, if Jesus is central to you, I'm not talking about if Jesus is peripheral to you. He's just an, an appendage on your life. You, he's good sometimes, but other times I'm, I'm not so into Jesus. If Jesus is central to you, and that's all I say, if Jesus is central to you, and not to your partner, then that means your partner doesn't truly understand you at all. Because if Jesus is central to you, you're going to live your life in ways that they're not going to live their life. I mean, let me give you one example that I hear often. Oftentimes, I'll hear a wife who is married to an unbeliever with a whole lot of anxiety and tension about giving. I can't, I can't, I want to give. I want to be generous. But man, when I do, when I do, he just blows up. And if I do it, I have to do it private. I have to do it secretly. See, he doesn't understand you. He doesn't understand that Jesus is central to you. He doesn't understand that you've had a new birth, that you are a new creature in Christ, and you're going to do things that are entirely different from the worldly way of living. Secondly, if Jesus is central to you and you marry someone to whom Jesus is not central, you will feel intense pressure to move Christ out of his central place in your heart so as to not feel isolated from your spouse. 
In other words, let, let's say that there's some brave, courageous women who have said, I am going to go on and I'm going to live for Christ, whatever the cost may be, and it's difficult for them. Others begin to feel that pressure and begin to say, you know, I'm going to have to do something here. It's either Jesus or my spouse. And because your spouse is there 24 hours a day and you want to please them and you want to try to keep things at peace, Christ will become more and more distant. And this is the truth, folks. I'm not making this up. After, after 38 years in the church and, and seeing this play out over and over again, it is a terrible outcome. Let me commend a better outcome for you. Scott Hamilton is a, a decorated, awarded Olympic skating champion. And he was talking in an interview recently about a change that came about for him. He, he, he came to a point where he was convicted of his sin and he, he come to faith in Christ and he said the change for him came this way. He said, when the woman who later became my wife just straight up asked me, where are you in your relationship with Christ Jesus? Now let's just stop there for a minute. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool that there would be a young man or young lady say, hold up here, <laughs> hold up here. I need to know. Jesus is central to me. I just need to know, is he central to you? Where are you in your relationship with Jesus Christ? And here's what he said. And I said what any smart guy in that situation would say, which was, where do you want me to be? (laughs) Good answer. So as I close today, how about you? Where are you in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Because as we come back to the front now, this was a letter written to Christians, married and single, both in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, following, obeying, and serving their Lord. Is that where you are with Jesus? Now, seriously, I need to ask you, is this where you're at? I mean, are you, is Jesus central to you? Are you following him, serving him, obeying him? Is that where you're at? And if not, why? Why not? What is keeping you from the greatest person who ever lived? What is keeping you from a relationship with Jesus Christ? Because that is where he wants you. Scott Hamilton says, where do you want me to be? Jesus is saying to you, he wants you. He wants you to be in relationship with him in such a way that he is central to your heart and that you will follow him, love him, and serve him, married or single.